Across America, BP supports more than 275,000 jobs to keep energy flowing. Jobs like updating turbines at one of our Indiana wind farms and producing more oil and gas with fewer operational emissions in the Gulf of Mexico. It's and, not or. See what doing both means for energy nationwide at bp.com slash investing in America. Addiction plays hardball. He would hit me with these verbal attacks. I just said to him, I love you so much. You're such an amazing person. I can't take this ride anymore. It was the fact that dad made that sentiment and broke down. And years later, he told me it had a huge impact on him. Sometimes doing what's right for your loved one is the hardest thing to do. Karen is that right thing. Visit caron.org slash lost. Hey, yo, what's up, world? This is uh-huh. DJ JS1 of the legendary Rocksteady crew. And right now, yeah. you're listening to The Library with my Sunshine. man, Tim Einenkel. Strictly the real hip-hop. Peace. Come on. Bedside, come on. Fort Green, come on. Everybody, come on. My next guest is a producer, engineer, label owner, and much more. He worked with MCs such as KRS, Big Daddy Kane, Sean P, Master Ace, EMC, and so much more. It is safe to say he's a major reason why your ears like a lot of Matt Davis's music. He's Rich Ahe, and I want to welcome him to the library with Tim Einenkel. Thanks for being here. It's good to be here, Tim. Thanks for having me. Thank you. And if you're old enough to walk to the store, you can buy liquor. So I want to start from the beginning, because that's a good place to start with the interviews. Um, how did you get involved with the music industry? Oh, wow. Um, I used to play in bands as a kid. In my era... Uh, every block had a garage band. It wasn't really, you know, uh, rappers and DJs kind of thing. But I caught kind of the, the tail end of that. And somewhere in the early 80s, I had some friends in my neighborhood who came to me about uh, doing a record with them. So they needed somebody to do the music. So we went into the studio and did the music for this record, um, which was called girls rule the world which was a it was a bite off curtis blows if i rule the world guys who did that record actually turned into the group Kid and Play. Wow. So what happened to that record? Well, that record, what we did was they wrote it and we got girls in the neighborhood to perform it. And we actually got a deal with the record. Um, we called up, we had a Marley Mall was spinning for Mr. Magic and we got him to play the record and we called up the radio station like requesting the record like what was that what was that what was that and the next week uh, we had a meeting with a label called Sutra Records played the record for them told them it got played on the radio and they gave us a deal uh, but it was so it was actually it was the Chris's but they weren't actually rhyming on it. I'm going to ask you, I want to ask you about 78 and 88 uh, recording studios, but I want to talk about that. Is that, if you fast forward to today, right, uh, just knowing what you know with the music industry, can that, something like that happen where 
you could just easily call up a radio station or you could just you know easily like would that deal or that no process not, not that way but i think that's kind of what happens with social media because the record labels are influenced by you know numbers on social media yeah. it's not really you know how good the song really is so not exactly the same way but yeah i think in, in ways they're influenced by outside things that you can manipulate you know people sometimes manipulate their numbers right, views. Right, right. Yeah. You have fake followers. followers right? <laughs> <laughs> um, so now, as I mentioned, I mentioned seventy-eight, eighty-eight uh, recording studios. You were the co-owner, engineer yes. there. Um, Who were some of the artists that you kind of that walked through the door and you recorded? <sighs> um, wow, Lost Boys, Group Home, uh, Smith and Wesson, Helter Skelter, OGC, Big L. Uh, wow, Big Daddy Kane, Das Effects, Craig Mack, Master Ace, Eminem. Um, I know I'm leaving out a lot. But. <laughs> <laughs> is there. So, what I mean, what is that? They call you up? They, they just come it, through the it, door? Do you get a reputation? A, a, or? Um, I guess a, a little bit of a, a lot of that. A lot of it was word of mouth. Like, we didn't really advertise. Um, we were at a, a a period in the 90s where hip-hop was booming. And um, where we were located was on the border in between Brooklyn and Queens. So there was a lot of guys out there who didn't know or didn't want to travel to the city. So once they found a studio, they would tell their friends, they would tell their friends. And the setup was kind of cool because it was like a, a warehouse. And when you once you came inside... Um, it was really isolated, you know. So it was just a really cool vibe. It was a nice, big, lofty kind of warehouse in the middle of <laughs> Queens. <laughs> is there? Um, I mean, I don't know if it's going to make sense, but w when you mention all those artists, is there like a common kind of attribute that each of them have that kind of hmm. that you could say like makes them kind of a, a pinnacle artist or a lyricist or just like, even like work work effort like uh, you know yeah they they all did not have the same work ethic they all had uh some something about them that was special um some guys were just the minute you heard them their voice their voice grabbed you some guys you know it was the lyrical content some guys it was their uh the attitude that came through the speakers, you know, you just kind of knew right away. I think I was just fortunate that the type of studio I was, the quality of gear we had, the price point and the location, I was just fortunate that I got the opportunity to like work with a lot of those guys. And then once you got like a, a producer that liked the space and if he got hot, you know, he would just bring everybody through. I understand that Sean P, uh, Walk through the doors of 7888. Yeah. 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 Yeah.
English man, BJ Blige remind me. Take my hoodie off, nigga, I can't see behind me. Why these guys shoot? You know, obviously, I've never got to, I never got to meet him. I never got to interview him. Um, but every story you hear about him is you hear that he seems like one of the nicest people in the world. Um, do you remember the first time you met him and like what that, I guess that conversation was like before he was recording? First time I met him. The first time I met him, the like the whole duck down roster was in the studio, so we didn't really have a lot of like one on one time. You know, they were all kind of more congregating together. But when we did have time to finally talk, yeah, he was definitely um, a humble guy, really witty. You know, like when when you when you spoke to him. He would have. He had a vocabulary and, a, and knowledge of things that would surprise you. You know what I mean? Like he would just say stuff and stuff like that. I remember one time he he did something where you know uh, a rhyme that he did uh, where he mentioned Paul Orndorff. Do you know who Paul yes. Orndorff is? He WWF. Like <laughs> <laughs> Come on, I'm Barry Windham and Mike Rotundo. Let's go. I have the album. <laughs> but it, it was just kind of. Um, you know, he he was he would surprise me with that because of what on the on the exterior he he, he would seem kind of gruff, but once you talk to him, he was articulate and had like a, a really uh, wide base of knowledge, you know, which was kind of uh, pleasant. You know what I mean? Uh, Seventy eighty had end. Um, do you remember that day that it all? Kind of, it, 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 it was just over. I mean, what was that day? Somebody uh, shot my console. That <laughs> seems like a message that was sent. <laughs> I mean, was that? I mean, what? Ha- I mean, I guess what happened? Uh, I was in uh, Pennsylvania. It was a Sunday night, and I got a phone call from my partner saying, "You got to come to the studio. You got to come to the studio." And it was like, um, yeah, I think maybe two o'clock in the morning, and I was like whatever it is can wait till the morning right? right and he didn't even get into details and next morning i drove into new york and i get to the studio and the place is just mangled people took bats to the equipment the tvs the walls you know everything um I don't know what happened to be a hundred percent honest with you. <laughs> <laughs> they they didn't steal anything. Uh, they just destroyed the place. So, and it was just not worth rebuilding, or um, or was it just kind of a well, we you know we we were not we were not good businessmen. So over the years, we invested a lot of sweat and money into the space. But we were very underinsured. So when that happened, it kind of like, because I didn't know where it came from for me or why it happened, um, it kind of took the wind out of my sails you right. know, with, with the whole studio thing. Uh, I lost a lot of money. You know, I didn't even, I didn't even, I didn't, I didn't think about rebuilding at all. I just thought about, I got to go home. <laughs> I just got to go home. The next six months were kind of crazy for me because then, you know, I went through like this range of, of emotions of, um, you know, first I was depressed, then I was mad, then I was, you know, 
uh, and Ace used to call me every day. Uh, Ace and DJ Rob would call me every day, like, yo, how you doing? You okay? Everything okay? And that, I think, was, was one of the reasons why I decided to rebuild. Because I needed something to do. We had released Disposable Arts like a year before. Let's sing and learn about the letters of the alphabet. Hey, son, how you be? Hey, yo, I'm chillin'. And I see you D to go out and make a killing, but we're E. F that nigga, he making G's on tour with H-Town, doing shows overseas. Yeah, I heard he DJ, but yo, stop And the company the that was distributing Disposable Arts uh, went out of business right after 9-11. We released Disposable Arts October of 2001. And they lo- they had their funding from Interscope. They lost their funding, so Disposable Arts actually never really got released. Yeah. Like it became this cult kind of record, just by people passing around a few initial, you know, ones that were distributed. So that was kind of depressing. Uh, then the studio going down was kind of depressing. So I turned to Ace and I said, "Let's do another record. I'll rebuild if you do another record." And he said, okay, so we rebuilt and did Long Hot Summer. Yeah. Going out to the H-double. That's for you, you, and you. Yeah, Yeah, they got broke people, poor people, my people, your people. Listen, and they won't change, ever change, can't change, don't change. As I travel through various towns and strange places, I see the same scowls and frowns on the same faces. The game races and cats try to catch it. Before they know it, they know death on a first name basis. Whether it's slanging the banging, drinking the smoking, it's bound to be one cat thinking of loking. The hood's like a sitcom. Leave your bike outside, come back outside. I guarantee your shit gone. Young cats be selling the rock. Money and you rebuild the studio or... I, I I didn't want to go through that whole thing again of trying to build a whole complex. Plus, I saw I saw the technology changing. You know, like what we had in seventy eight eighty eight was was kind of old school. We had a big Neve console. We had a two inch machine. We had a ton of outboard gear. It was great for the for a classic type studio. Um, but Pro Tools was making you know, its entrance into the music industry in a big way. I started learning about the whole digital thing, and I thought it would be smarter to invest into that world than to go and invest into the older technology. When you're creating that conversation with Ace, like you say, make another album, I'll rebuild. Um, You guys already created an album. You've worked with him for a while. I mean, a good good amount of time between those two. I mean, you've known him. when you're seeing the technology is changing, how much of a factor does the technology play when you're working with an artist like Ace? Like, are you letting him know the things you're that are changing? Like, are, that you're able to do with the new technology that you're not able to do with the new technology at as he's kind of thinking about the new album. Um, does that make sense? I, yeah, <laughs> I, I think. I, yeah, I, I, I think I get your train of thought and. At that point for that album, I don't, I don't think so. Like when Ace creates these records, he doesn't tell me anything, you know. Like it's kind of like, and that was the deal. Uh, we kind of the agreement we kind of came to at the very beginning um, was, 
I'll be your support system. You can make the record you want, you know, mm-hmm. kind of thing. So we don't really discuss, you know, if he feels like he wants to bounce an idea off me, he does. Um, he plays beats for me. If I like him, he passes on them. You know what I mean? <laughs> <laughs> you know, stuff stuff like, like that. So do you now say you don't like him? So yeah, yeah. <laughs> it, it still doesn't work. He, he, he kind of knows now. <laughs> um, so when we did that record, like my my role at that point, I think was kind of you know recreate an environment where we could make the album, and I think he he just kind of went into his head to create what he thought would be the next album which what he did was because we had well, what happened with disposable um the fact that we thought that the world didn't hear it like right? mm-hmm. we had no clue you know within those first couple of years we didn't know what was kind of happening with the record and he decided to do a prequel in hopes right. that people would hear the second album and then go back and search out disposable um I'm going to ask you about equipment and stuff, but I want to, you're talking about Disposable, uh, we talk to anyone about Disposable and they're, it's like, they see it as a masterpiece. Um, when you guys found that, I'm sure you've heard that many times, that this is a masterpiece of an album. Um, when you heard that compliment, do you, is that something with each album that is created with you too, uh, that you 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 go for are you trying to make another disposable or do you really are ace and your and even yourself yourself do you treat each album as its own project as if maybe the other album didn't happen i think long hot summer um story wise he wanted to connect to disposable i don't think i think we try and do each record with just to try and make as good a record as we can I don't think there's. We've never had any kind of discussion about. Oh, this got to be the bomb. You know yeah. what I mean? Like, we got to we got to outpace the last record. Like, no, we've never had that. Each record has kind of been its own little story in itself. He wanted to tie all uh, Long Hot Summer to Disposable, but everything after that was kind of its own little story, you know, within itself. And no, I don't. I don't think we've ever kind of said any kind of. Um, benchmark for the records other than trying to do something quality you know something like like we look at them as as legacy you know kind of like we want to do records that when we're gone people are going to find and listen to and go wow who did this these guys (laughs) this is some good stuff when you your your job involved in in this and um when when ace says i want to long hunt summer i want to uh connect with disposable um are you doing anything like filter wise or as you know engineering wise to create that same sound that disposable has? I mean, you know, if you, to make that connection. Yeah, when when we went into when we did this uh, long hot summer, it was a whole different. It was a new technology for me, so I didn't. All I was trying to do, I wasn't trying to make it sound like disposable. I didn't think I I, I could honestly because. We were dealing with a, a whole different world and a different, actually, a different class of gear. What we had with disposable, and if you listen to the records, you, it, it kind of has like this different sound to it uh, because it wasn't all this digital stuff, you know. And it was like really high end stuff we were using. Um, so when we did Long Hot Summer, no, I wasn't shooting for that. I was just trying to learn 
the new technology we were dealing with when he unfolded the story i was trying to build the atmosphere of the story Damn. you know what i mean because we build out everything so if he says i'm walking down the block it's like okay what block you know what i mean is there trees is there cars is there you know i sit walking on pavement sand you know what is it so it was kind of like that but it wasn't really uh, it was more to build out the the atmosphere and the environment of of the time frame and and where he was telling the story than it was to try and make it sound like disposable. From a technical standpoint, did you did you like the change of from at first? No, at first I I, I hated it. I, I would listen to the stuff and like scratch my head. You know, thinking like, wow, why? It's why is where's the bass? You know, what I mean? <laughs> like, and and trying to figure out how how to do it. But now, in hindsight, I wouldn't go back. What we can do um, efficiency wise and productivity wise now in the digital world, and everything's getting better. The sound, the sounds are are getting better. The converters are better. The plugins are better. Everything's better. So I think that you can actually make a more um, stylized and and maybe even more perfect's not the right word. Uh, you you can tweak stuff now that you couldn't tweak before. We used to on disposable we would do a mix and leave it set up for as long as we could before we broke it down because once we broke it down we couldn't recall it. Right. You know now it Pro Tools like close it. I open yeah. it, I close it, <laughs> you know, it's the same it thing. It saves automatically now? Yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah, yeah. Every, everything's kind of saved. Like, we, we use outboard gear now, but the the way I use the outboard is I, I never touch the knobs. And I mark where the knobs are, and I yell at people, don't touch the knobs, because I never touch the knobs, so I know I can recall, like, that sound. So... It, it's different, like, but the efficiency aspect of it, I, I wouldn't go back. I think where it is now, I, I like. Would you, would you, would you have wanted to use the new technology to create disposable? No, uh, no, I would. I wouldn't change anything about any of the records. But now, there's a lot of stuff, you know, that bothered me at the time. Like, there's a song on disposable. Um, Oh man, brain fart. Can't think of the name of it. The first single, the one with Greg Nice. I don't do white music. I don't do black music. I make rap music for hip hop kids. Y'all know what it is when I get biz with this. I just don't understand, right? <laughs> and the the producer, like they left me alone to mix the record, and the producer, um, in the hook, the way he had, the, there's a vocal sample. So I filtered out all the music and left the vocal. And, you know, he wasn't around for those last couple of passes. But when he heard the record, finally, when it was done, like, he was like, oh, no, it's it's wrong. The music's supposed to be in there. Blah, blah. And it was like, well, you know, that's it. <laughs> but now it, it, you wouldn't want to hear it any other way. Right, right, you know? right. There's a part where Greg Nice at the end, he's doing an outro. And I recorded part of what he said. It was a mistake. I mean, I, I, you know, I erased part of what he said. It was a mistake. And when I realized, I hit the button. But the way the word that caught him coming back in is like that's part of the. You know, everybody knows that part of the record. Right, yeah. So there was a bunch of things that at the moment I, I wanted to change. You know, I mean, I, I wanted to go back and do this. Or snatch could have been loud. Or this could have been whatever. 
But now in hindsight, like now that they're, they're done, I wouldn't I wouldn't change anything. I'm gonna go back between uh so seventy eight eighty eight uh is done. Uh six months, uh you rebelled. Where does uh Yosumi uh uh figure in all this? Well Yosumi was um I had I had an idea during the seventy eight eighty eight period. I had an idea to do a uh, what would now I guess we call a mixtape. I had so many um, people coming to the studio who were known artists that I had this idea of doing this mixtape from the studio where I'd have all these artists on it and I would circulate it and I thought it would be advertisement for the studio. So I approached everybody about doing a song um a, a verse. I asked everybody for a verse, and I put the music together, you know, whatever. And everybody was like, yeah, yeah, sure, no problem, no problem, whatever. But nobody was doing it. So at the time, I had a um, an engineer who worked with me. He was my intern and my engineer, DJ Rob, who we still work. He's part of the whole M3 Yosumi thing now. And we were standing, we had a, 7880 had a big lobby. And at the time, Dreamcast was the popular game. So everybody would come out of their recording rooms and sit in the lobby and play each other with Dreamcast, right? And I was sitting there and I said, wow, you know, these dudes, like, they'll they'll play video games, but they won't give me a freaking verse. Right. You know what I mean? Like, maybe what we need to do is video game music. <laughs> he took that idea, went home, and came back a couple of days later with all of these beats based on video games, and I was sitting in, he was playing them for me in one room, and he did one uh, from Mario, uh, Super Mario. And Smith and & Wesson come running in like, yo, what's that? What's that? And we're like, yo, this is the stuff I was telling you about. I wanted to verse, blah, blah, blah. And they're like, yo, we want that beat. We want that beat. So I was like, yeah, cool. You can do it, you know, as long as you, I can use it too. And like, I don't give, I want the beat. And they end up writing a song called Super Brooklyn. Right, yeah, yeah. Which actually got, you know, I think that was instrumental in getting them re-signed with Rockers, right? That idea when Duck Down like Duck Down wanted to put it out but they like they wouldn't they wouldn't even put it out um, because they said we were going to get sued. Mm-hmm. And when I listened to all the video game beats, I was excited about the video game beats. And everybody's like, "Hey, you can't do it. You're going to get sued. You're going to get sued. You're going to get sued." So I was like, "You know what? We'll put it out ourselves." And we la- we named the label Yosumi. And that started with these Game Over records. Um, and we call the records Game Over, and they were like based on these video beats. But that's how I met Ace. Ah, right. Okay. And it was that. Uh, him working on that record and when that record came out and him liking that record and us talking and that's how that led us to Disposable. So Yosumi kind of kick-started the whole thing. Um, I did the first JS record. Right, right. Yeah. You know what I mean? The, the uh, ground original. It's, re- it's really original underground. <laughs> you know what I mean? Like- <laughs> Yo, live from my laboratory, lock my documents, collab JS1. Cross the continent, confidence, blow your shit to no tomorrow, kid. Be cold-hearted, but instead of borrow, give. I used to live a little different from the rest. Like instead of guard your grill, better guard your chest. Knockouts, blues, greens, but- and reds. 
that kind of kickstarted JS with the whole, you know, and then JS kind of kickstarted Yosumi with the breakbeats because he had, uh, he was doing like a lot of the um, competition stuff. And it was from his brainstorming that the idea came out to do all these breakbeat albums. And then Yosumi did a whole series of, of these breakbeat records, like, like his Scratch Roulette. Right, yeah, yeah. Wow. So by the time we did Long Hot Summer, Yosumi was kind of, uh, I wanted to, because it was a new studio, I felt like a new era, and I wanted to kind of break from that, so Yosumi morphed into M3. What's the major adjustment from running a recording studio to running a, a label? I mean, like, um, how much more are you taking on, or how much less are It's you? a huge adjustment. With with a recording studio, you have daily cash flow. <laughs> <laughs> with a label, you just never make any money. <laughs> a lot of, like, out-of-pocket expenses, or... it's For us, it wasn't, because we did so much stuff in-house. Like, we, we attempted to do everything in-house. And we were fortunate in that right away, because of... The records we had done before and because of Ace, because Ace has became like, you know, the franchise. Um, distribution, people always wanted to partner up with distribution. So they took over, the distributors always took over the manufacturing end of it. And we would come up with ideas with, you know, marketing and promotion, but they would put up the money to hire the, the people to do it. So, yes, label from from the idea of of the starting point of the records but honestly we never really got into the day-to-day aspect of being a label we always partnered up with people who kind of helped us and who had more experience with that aspect of you know selling records would you have wanted to be more independent uh i mean in terms of less partnering or do do you think that's kind of what needs to be done i think we needed it because i had no knowledge or experience of really what to do other than, you know, I can make the records. I can make records every day. But beyond that, you know, it took years of, of working with other people who were kind of vested in the in the business. You know, Fat Beats was big at the beginning. Right. You know, because um, they were really cool. You can go up there and talk to them and we would talk about ideas. And, and Joe kind of schooled us on how it worked you know what i mean what, what you needed to do with with all the the retailers and how to get the records out there so without that um no i think if we try to do it all independent you wouldn't know we wouldn't be having this interview <laughs> <laughs> uh, you mentioned the game over um uh, mixtapes uh so obviously you had to deal with clearance issues or n- no clearance issues uh not a one. We, I guess we. I'm, I'm forgetting because I remember playing Super Brooklyn for at my radio in college, and obviously it was like it was the hit record of you know. Yeah. Uh, also uh, on that was you ever hear that Eminem record Hellbound? Yes, that's all that's for there. Yo, Slim Shady. Yo, I fucking right. I. I puke, eat it, and freak you Battle, I'm too weedy to speak to The only key that I see to defeat you Would be for me to remove these to Adidas and beat you And force feed you in both And on each feed is a cleat shoe 
I lift you off your feet so fast with a roundhouse You think I pulled the fucking ground out from underneath you I ain't no fucking GM mechanical I ain't trying to shoot you, I'm trying to chop you into pieces and eat you Wrap you in rope and plastic, stab you with broken glass and have you with open uh, gas funny because if you, go on, if you go on the internet, Hellbound, like, you know Fans put up there, it's D12. It's yeah, 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 it's true. Yeah, you're right. Yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah it's not. It's Eminem, Master Ace, and a, a guy named Jay Black. <laughs> you're right. They do put D12. Yeah. Um, did you get? Did you have a problem with? Never. I think. I think what happened at the beginning was it was so under the radar. It was a big record as an indie because at that point we, you know. I guess we were an indie. So it, it became like this cult kind of thing on the indie level. It wasn't really a, a massive seller. You know, the only record that got on the radio was Super Brooklyn. Right. Um, the other records people knew, but not in the traditional way. It was, you know, kind of underground, passed around kind of thing. Eminem becoming a star is what made make people know Hellbound. If if that never happened, nobody would even know, right, you right. know what that record was. So it wasn't really a big record that way. So I think that's part of it. I think part of the idea of it being called Yosumi, people must have assumed that it's it's some Japanese label. I think that, yeah. <laughs> you know? When you guys told me about it, I was like, oh, it's a Japanese label. Huh? Yeah, Interesting. You know, yeah. with, with, and then the way we spelt it... Um, I think that we just never had any any issues. And then Eminem being a, a Master Ace fan, when he became a superstar, his label never shut us down. And I think part of that was because M was cool with, you know, because we, we, not knowing, we put them together on a record. Like his verse was, they weren't, they didn't do that record. Nobody did none of the records together. Half the people didn't even do those verses on the beats. Did they know they were no. collaborating? No. Nobody knew. And no one heard, like, Ace didn't hear M's verse prior to it or no. M's verse? Just going back to the, the clearance uh, sampling, uh, how has that, I mean, how has that changed? I mean, could you have done, could you, do? You, if you did that record, if you did Game Over... Today? Today, I mean... No, well, it's funny. Today we could probably get away with it, but um, somewhere in between, we did it in ninety nine, two thousand. So I, I think if we would have did it around two thousand nine, two thousand ten, we'd have been shut down right away. It, it, there was a period where everybody was shutting you down with samples um, because records were making money and they wanted money out of it, or they didn't want you to touch the record. But now the industry is so hurting for dollars that people are clearing records you know what i mean like it, it's if you can pay them a little bit of money or they get a piece of the publishing like a lot of people and, and you know as long as you're not doing something with it that they feel hurts their brand right that that might give you an issue um somebody like a nintendo probably would never have taken my phone call anyway you know what i mean <laughs> like like i don't even know I wouldn't have known who to call for a lot of those right. clearances. It wasn't record labels. <laughs> right, if it was right. record labels, we probably would have had a problem. But probably, you know, since it was like something totally different at the time, now the gaming industry is so big, you know, maybe they have lawyers searching the internet now too. We have all those. I mean, you also have, you, you put on, like, you know, put on a 2K basketball game and, and they have artists doing songs for them. So, yeah. I mean, imagine they... I wonder if they they probably have music lawyers. Yeah, but now. It, it, well, even even them, like you know, even when like 
like they don't pay us no royalties for those. Like we have songs in uh, Grand Theft. Yeah, it's a not a one off fee. You know, like that needs to change. I think those guys are making billions off these games. Right, and, right, right. You know, they're using your stuff forever for a few thousand dollars. Uh, so I don't know. I don't know how. I don't know where their heads at. I don't know if they're making so much money they don't care. You know, right, or it'd be the kind of thing where they feel like, no, you can't use it. That's mine. And when we did it, you know, if somebody used my record without me knowing and they made a ton of money, I guess I would want a piece of it. But if they didn't, you know, in a way, I, I'd look at it as flattery. <laughs> you know, like, oh, you used it? That's cool. That's good. Um, so I, I, I don't know. Uh, I don't think we ever really we didn't make it that much money off the stuff. It was much more of a, a cultish kind of thing. I want to talk about uh, a track off of uh, Game Over Volume Two um, with uh, Infamous Mob and Prodigy. Uh, it obviously is produced by Domingo, but there's a lyric in it where Prodigy disses Rockefeller Records, and I kind of part that's part of the reason why Jay Z did the takeover and. Uh, obviously, it's, we all know the history behind that or what happened with that. Big respect like the name Xerox. Run, bitch. I'm in out to Blitock. Niggas get shot, fucking with me. Of course. You're a rap nigga. I'm a crime boss. I'm a full bred, full fledged mob nigga. I pledge allegiance to my infamous flag. Niggas get tagged and bagged for coming at my familiar. This ain't the rock nigga. We ain't the Ass niggas, it's just that gangster shit from the world's most dangerous click that walk any pavement. I do what the fuck I feel, say what the fuck I want. Was this a conscious decision to have? I guess when you heard that lyric, what was your initial thoughts? Like, it must be I need on the. To use that verse. That was my first thought when I heard the lyric. <laughs> and is that more because? Is that is that because? Um, from an artistic side, it just and, and from the, the, the history of battles and hip hop, or did you just were you thinking more of like from a business sense, this is going to a little of both. We were uh, at my head at that time was um, more about how to how to raise the profile of the project. So I wasn't really. I, I think I was probably more concerned with the quality of the songs on the first volume than I was on the second volume. On the second volume we had a lot we had bigger names. We had a label behind it. We had like uh you know there was a push behind it. So I wanted it to be a as a big record. So when I heard the lyric, I think you know being honest, I think my main motivation was um People are going to check for that because of because of what he's saying. Right. Not so much, you know. Oh, that's an amazing verse. Right, right. It right. wasn't. It wasn't that. It wasn't. Um, it was that. Wow, that's going to bring some controversy, which will, will probably bring some people to to look at the record. That was my main motivation. Plus, it was Prodigy, so it was getting used. You know? Yeah, yeah. yeah. <laughs> <laughs> it wasn't no doubt about it. But I mean, if there's like if if you had an artist that was like an up and comer and he used it or she used it, but that... I don't think it would have had the same. I would have probably still used it if 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 we felt the song was strong enough based on you know um, everything we had that we wanted to use the song. Yeah, I would have used it, but it made it all that more exciting that it was Prodigy. Um, another this record that uh, was from Master Ace's uh, 
acknowledge, right? Uh, for disposable arts. I don't know what you cast was thinking. <laughs> Pay homage, respect. Must have been crazy. Acknowledge. Step up on stage at CMJ. You mention my name. I hear these cats, but I ain't listening. A little faint dissing, a little scratch, a little paint missing. But I still gleam and glisten, hot like a stream of pissing. I'm about to have your whole team wishing that you never got this shit started. Uh, hey, this is Boogie Man and I am Mighty. Uh, and that is, that's not just one line. That is, that's a, that's a, that's, there's no word you know the story. Uh, well, yeah, that's what I was saying. What, what, what's the discussion behind that? And when he did the diss record, what were your there's initial of, thoughts? There's a lot of guys that don't talk to me anymore because of that record. I was at CMJ. I was at CMJ with Domingo, DJ Rob, and a rapper named Tone Deaf. And we were like in the crowd. I remember that was the first day I met Wordsworth, actually. So I'm talking to Words, you know, met Words, and High and Mighty was on stage. And they were performing, and we weren't really paying attention. And we heard all, all of a sudden we heard a line, and all of us looked up, and we were like, oh, shh. Did they just diss Ace? And like us being girls, like, yo, he just dissed Ace. Yo, yo, I can't believe, what the? We ran back, we were working on Disposable. So we ran back to the studio and we told Ace, you know, what they said. I don't know if you can curse on this, so I won't. But, (laughs) and, um, you can. What we thought, (laughs) what, what I thought they said was, fuck a master Ace, I walked through a Jewish slaughterhouse. Right, right, and we were like, "Yo, he dished. They dished you, man. Who the fuck are they?" Blah 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 blah. And he had already. Then Ace and I had done a record called "Ghetto Like" with uh, Socrates from Calif- from uh, Canada, and that was the whole Boogeyman issue because Boogeyman was saying that we bit his record, mm-hmm. right? So, and and that was that rumor was kind of like around and. And I think Ace was just – I caught – Disposable is a funky time in Ace's uh, life, which is why I think it was so special. I think prior to Disposable, he thought his career was over. Mm. and But he had a lot to say because of things that went on you know, in his life and in the industry that he didn't get a chance to say. So – when the opportunity came to do Disposable, I think he was saying some things that he wanted to say, and, and he was saying them passionately. Yeah, yeah. So this this thing, the boogeyman and the high and mighty thing, I think that kind of just fueled the passion fire, and Acknowledge was born. So Acknowledge comes out. We're like, it was a crazy record, right? Gets released. High and mighty hears it, and they call Ace. And they were like, yo, what did we do? We're fans. Like, you you hung out with us. Like, we thought we were boys, you know? And Ace was like, well, this is what happened. And he told them. And they were like, no, no, no. Like Master Ace, I walked through a Jewish <laughs> slaughterhouse. <laughs> <laughs> and they, they had put that on wax, and they played the record for him. So he comes back to the studio pissed. And he was like, yo, what the fuck? You guys, you know? And, and, to my credit, I am the only one who said I might have been wrong. Right, okay. Everybody else was like, no, that's what we that's not what we heard. That's what we heard. That's what we heard. 
And, you know, but it was too late. The record was out. It was a, uh, people were loving the record. Ace called High and Mighty back up. He, he apologized. He told him, yo, you guys come come at me on a record. I won't respond. Right. But I can't pull the record now. You know what I mean? Yeah, so it was born out of... Uh, <laughs> it was born out of stupidity. But it, was, <laughs> it was dope. And, like, and now in hindsight, knowing them, I don't think they said what we thought they said. You know? Uh, but... It fueled a great record, <laughs> and it was, no, it is. Yeah, it's it's uh, and it's 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 definitely like I mean, like you said, the passion behind yeah, that yeah, album yeah. and that track is kind of yeah, and and to this day, like Tone Deaf doesn't talk to me because he thinks that I said that he said it, you know. And but what happened with the whole thing was like as, as the as the the record came out and the and the record started, you know, everything started circulating. People who wanted to interview people, they wanted to interview two people. They wanted to interview three people. Ace, Domingo, or Tone Deaf. Mm-hmm. Nobody knew who I was. Nobody wanted to interview you know, me. Like, right. I would have said, yeah, I told them. And I think I made a mistake. So a lot of the, 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 the like, who told Ace this fell on Tone Deaf and Domingo. Right. Oh yeah. Right. Right. You know what right. I mean. And Tone Deaf was like, "I didn't say nothing." And to this day, he, like he thinks I planted that seed. And I don't think he's talked to me in twenty years. <laughs> uh, I want to turn. Uh, you obviously have many roles, right? Uh, as like an executive producer, engineer. I mean, you know, label. You know, you and part of your job as especially your executive producer is to like. Well, I always. I imagine is to push the artist to his or her talent. Talking about Master Ace, when 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 Master Ace, uh, when you found out he was diagnosed with multiple sclerosis, um, did that change your relationship in terms of how much you felt you could quote unquote push him? No, and and Ace didn't. Ace when Ace got diagnosed, he didn't tell us because of that reason. He didn't want anybody to treat him any differently. So by the time I found out, he had been dealing with it already for a couple of years. Right. So it was um, like, no, that thought never came into my mind. Um, I didn't really even understand what it was. You know what I mean? I heard heard about it. I had to read, read up on exactly what it was. So, and no, like, uh, I don't think, I think, Part of, of, in him, I think part of the urgency a lot of times to be on point, because he's really on point, like to the point where it's annoying, you know. Uh, but I think a lot of that is that in the back of his mind, like, you know, I, I got to do what I can while I can, right. you know. But no, I, I never really, you know, I don't, I don't think I, I ever treated him any different uh, afterwards. As a fan of Ace, the, I mean, the great thing is that he constantly makes records that that that, that are whole. Um, like each track, I feel like relate to each other. Um, and so you have artists like that who want to make kind of a, a complete album. Um, but then you also, I think, you have artists that I wonder if they come to you and be like I just want to make a a single or a hit record. Um, uh, how do you? How do you approach working with 
those two types of artists are you are they different do you approach them differently or yeah. do you try to convince them like it's not just about the hit record it's kind of about a full album yeah I, I think um, I think an artist like Ace um, he can do either I think uh, a lot he's he's fortunate to this point where he's been able to do like whole projects like that where he can kind of have a complete thought you know and, and tie it together and a lot of people they're just looking for an opening so to, to uh they come in trying to trying to make this hit record my best advice to anybody is just try and make a really good record you know what i mean like a hit record so many things have to line up for a hit record to happen that um it's out of your control but it's within your control to do a really quality record you know like don't chase the fad come in and come in and and try and use what your strength is you know whatever your passion is sometimes like i hear people who like i'll hear them over a a 10-year period and and every two years the record's totally different yeah you know what i mean and they're, they're just trying to be relevant but yeah. in a bad way <laughs> you know what I mean like they're, they're it's like they're chasing that car around the track like you're never gonna catch it no no right you know right. what I mean so if you come in and you just try and you know do a, re- a really good record with whatever your strength is and I think that's where like having a really quality producer plays in a lot of guys don't have producers anymore you know I hear I see a lot of beat makers who they create music for somebody then they hand it off to the artist and then they're not around anymore like I came up in an era where the producer you know like the first real producer that I spent a lot of time with in the studio was Herbie Lovebug and Herbie sat there and wrote the song with you you know what I mean talked about concepts moved around lyrics created the beat with you like pulled the performance out of you you know what I mean he was there from the beginning to the end of the record and that's just my idea of a good producer. And I think a lot of times when a good records happen, like with Ace, there are times where Ace gets beats from uh, producers, beat makers, but now Ace becomes the producer on the song. Right. You know what I mean? Like it's beyond just the music; it's about the whole thing. Like you know, we rearrange the beats to adapt to the song. You know, move stuff around do different arrangements add different parts and like what you're saying with his songs if you listen to a lot of his songs they're structured you know and there's there's different things that happened something might happen at the very end of the record that never happened anywhere else it just happens in a fade out or something but it's the idea of creating this like one complete song and I I think a lot of his stuff there have been a lot of great producers along the way um, but sometimes they're just beats that somebody sent him in the email right. and those records like he became the producer on the record you know when you have when that happens are you what's that working dynamic between you two I mean are you also becoming like are you quote unquote forced to become the producer as well yeah uh, 100% co-producer I would co-producer. say yeah, and then like, what what is the I mean you kind of you, you mentioned it earlier about the beat selection process but how does that where, I mean, does he play the beat for you? You say, I like it. He says, of course, he throws it out the window because he yep. said, you like it. You know, yep. that. If, I like, if I like it, it's too commercial. <laughs> <laughs> he played, I'll never forget, he played um, Good Old Love For Me. You know that record? The ninth one, the beat. Give me some of that good old love. 
That's actually Nike won this first place And I was sitting in his car And he played it for me And he was excited about it And he played it for me And I was like It's alright He goes I know it's good now <laughs> like, like we, we have Like once we're working on the record Then we're working on the record together But at at the beginning it's kind of like we're in a which kind of i think makes makes it work balance wise like i'll say stuff that makes him think about things in a different way you know what i mean yeah. um, he'll say stuff that makes me think about things in a different way we have different ideas of what's hot all the time like i've just did a bunch of records that i sent to him that i'm like super excited about and he's like it's all right so but it's cool because it, it's like it kind of makes me uh, okay. So now, if if I if I can be excited about it and I can do something to it that makes him excited about it, I know it's good. Let me put y'all on like a bulb in a socket in the club. Niggas knock it with a dub in the pocket. They walk in the store. I love when they cop it. Make you other rappers struggle to top it. But this man flow with the greatest. And we've done. There's been projects like that too, where I kind of at the beginning, like I was the one who felt there was something there kind of you know crafted it along to the point where all of a sudden he, now he's listening and he's like yo that's good and but i still like it so you know what I mean? Cause he'll play me stuff that i'm like nah i'm i'm i'm, I'm, I'm past that <laughs> <laughs> the, the, the artist i mentioned in the introduction it, uh, you you talk to them about their their music influences or what they were listening to as kids and it's always that you know, I was listening to what was in my dad's or my mom's record collection, which is usually just like some seventies like soul music, right? Uh, we're at a time where like new artists today they're growing up. Hip hop is rap music is the most popular genre out there. That that's what they're listening to. That's what they're growing up at. I mean, like Nas is Illmatic is in their parents' uh, record collection, right. you'd say, or even past that. I imagine the same thing with producers or engineers is that they're growing up on they're also growing up in the same music um for you what's the what's the difference of working with an artist that is growing grew, is growing up on rap music and and fellow engineer or a fellow pro, or producer that is growing up on rap music versus growing up on that 70s soul for me it's hard not to like i i got to always remind myself that um when I was coming up, like when I started, I moved trying to do hip hop stuff in the 80s, right? Like I, I was one of those kids who was around with the era of, you know, guys coming out and playing music in the parks, you know? Mm, right. And our parents at the time thought it was noise, right? right? Nobody played it on the radio. Even the DJs who spun, not every DJ spun that type of music you know what i mean so it was definitely like a uh, a niche underground kind of sound that everybody older and uh bigger in the industry thought it was a fad it was going to fade away it's not it's not good the same way that a lot of times i find my generation looking at the new guys now with the right. trap stuff yeah you know what i mean yeah. so i have to keep reminding myself that was me 25 years ago you know so it's just different. It's not, I can't really, it's not better, <laughs> you know? <laughs> it's different. So you have to kind of, like me, I have to constantly kind of remind myself and open up my mind to kind of 
uh, uh, figure out what they like about it. And to be honest with you, there's a lot of stuff that I think that they're doing that's really, really creative. It's different. It's musical in a different way. The guy, the people I grew up with listening to were musicians. So their musical abilities were, were, were different. The stuff that these guys are listening to now, even like, like if you listen to like the, the, the music, somebody in the 90s would use like a soul sample. You know what I mean? And you would hear the, the musicianship in that little four-bar loop. Mm-hmm. You could hear a lot of stuff going on. Nowadays music the musicality is not as complex Mm -hmm. but they're still doing some really cool stuff like just the fact that like the 808 was not a kick drum when we were doing our 90s hip-hop right and we were credited with this idea of creating this this uh robotics type of kick drum you know, which right. we listened to the 808. What these kids did with it, they took it to the next level. They turned it into bass lines. They distorted it. They, you know what I mean? Like, they did this whole, it's a melodic thing. Wyclef? Can't you do better than that? The <laughs> <laughs> Isn't this the one you had? They had an expensive one for you? No, man. I oh. didn't know this one. <laughs> he set it up. <laughs> <laughs> That's funny. <laughs> You know what I mean? Like, so they're doing creative stuff. Like, you know, even like what they're doing. I, I watch. Like, I'm really into like hip hop dance. Like, that was the first thing that kind of moved me into hip hop when I was a kid. The, the dance aspect of it. And I watch these kids now, these dancers on, on YouTube, and they're dancing to this trap music, and they're doing way cooler stuff th- than we used to do. Like, the music is influencing them. Right. You know what I mean? So. I think there's something really good and talented and musical there. Uh, sometimes I just have to fight to find it. <laughs> because for us, it was like a lyrical thing, you know? Yeah. But e- even at the beginning, like like with like with the, the kid and play era, it was lyrical, but it was a different kind of lyrical. It was like a happy party kind of lyrical. Then it moved into a more, you know... Uh, it was always like guys like Flash were always, you know, Furious Five. Yeah. They were always social. But it didn't feel it social, right, right. you know what I mean? In the 90s, it felt more social, you know, a lot of the lyrical stuff. Um, guys were showing their, their, their vocabulary skill, you know. Now, not so much. But right. that doesn't mean it's whack, right. <laughs> you, know, you know what I mean? Like, it, it's it's good. Like, uh, I like it. I, I, the more and more I listen to it, I find value in it. I think the other issue is that there's, there's I guess... Radio play wise, there's less diversity of terms. Like well, there's like, no diversity. Yeah, no. and that's the I think. But I do think that our older generation does romanticize what kind of what rap music back then. I mean, I think every generation always romanticizes something, right? Yeah. But there is that romanticism about like, oh, back in the day, we weren't ever talking about this and this and this. And like, well, technically, there were moments, there were groups talking about this, this, and this. And but now, just more highlighted because. That's all you hear on the radio. But yeah. there is, I mean, if you go to, I mean, the internet and with yeah. SoundCloud and all that, there are there are a lot of... There's a lot of really good stuff. It's just, it's so, when I was a kid, I sat in front of, there was one radio station I listened to. One. It was on AM. And I sat in front of the radio all day to hear the new, my new favorite song. And maybe during the course of the day, you heard it once or twice. Right. Depending on how new, you know nowadays like and because there were so many different things they were playing 
nowadays if it, it feels like if you listen to one dj set you heard everything they're gonna play the whole, the whole day, day yeah and, and every other station too the same thing right. yeah so it definitely you know um is different the kids are finding like i'm constantly introduced that's one cool thing about the studio I'm constantly introduced to new music from some young kid who comes in the studio that I never would have found if it wasn't for this kid. How did he find it though? Right. You know what I mean? Like, so he's not tied into the radio. They ha- they they have their avenues to find stuff. I just don't have that kind of time to just be surfing YouTube and surfing. <laughs> you know, what I mean? it's just way easier for me to turn on the radio and, and lit. But yeah, it's 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 not the same. It's it's kind of boring. You know, okay. you and YouTube, I could just listen to the Trolls two soundtrack, so that's all I got. Yeah, and one song off of it, so it's kind of just <laughs> a lot of Justin Timberlake we're listening to nowadays. Uh, um, I'm glad you, you just brought us back in the studio. I'm, this, I walk into the studio. There seems like a lot happening. Um, how do you 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 have an artist recording? Um, how do you monitor? Like, what is your practice of monitoring? I guess what's going on. Are you, are you one that has like a favorite monitor to listen? You know, listening to. Are you having you mean head- outside in the in? Oh, you mean? Well, I mean, in the studio itself. Like when when something's being created, are you one that has to listen on headphones? Can't have anybody in with you. Are you listening to it on speakers? Well, from the from the seventy eight eighty eight days, it was more of a traditional studio with a control room and a recording room or vocal booth. When we moved into when we rebuilt after Long Hot Summer and moved into Manhattan, um, same similar kind of setup, just much smaller. Um, what I did was I moved into a record label called AV8 Records. Um, their, their claim of fame is probably like the Fat Man Scoop Records. Okay. And, um, but they were a vinyl-based label that didn't adapt quickly enough. And when the vinyl disappeared, they closed. So we were in a position where we had to move again and find a new space for the studio. So then we moved into the Daddy's House building. Right, but when I moved into that studio, the 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 space because Manhattan real estate is crazy expensive, right? Was yeah. even smaller. So I started recording with the artist inside the room with me. Like that's how I do it here. So at first it was um, out of necessity, but what I realized was I listened more. When the artist was in a different room, separated by wall and glass, while they were recording, I I would answer my phone. Right, because you could. And, right. Yeah. You know what I mean? I would text. I would surf Twitter. You know what I mean? <laughs> Whatever. Um, and I thought I was listening. But what I realized once I started doing it, like, you know, when we record, like, close the doors, everybody shuts off their phones, Put everybody puts on headphones. And I found that I listen much more intently. So now that's my preferred method of recording vocals. So and that's what you do with like EMC and everybody. And Just like this right here, sitting down. <clears throat> what is the artist? What, what, do you have a sense of how the artist feels is, about that? Feels about it? I mean, do you think it's at, too at, close for uh, him or her? Or? At first, everybody is a little, you know, caught back by like, 
are you serious? <laughs> um, but once they do it, all of them seem to like it because a lot of times, imagine you're a vocalist in a booth and you're looking through a glass and there's four people in on the other side of the glass and you can't hear anything they're saying unless they push a button. Right. So they're talking and you don't hear nothing. And they push the button. They go, okay, let's do it. Music starts playing. You perform. Stop the tape. And they're talking. And, like, all artists are, are self-conscious. Right, right, you know right. what I mean? Like, they want feedback. Was it good? Do I need to do it again? Let me hear it. What do you think? And it's kind of weird. You know what I mean? Like, you're looking through the booth and, like, we're talking about it. You don't know if we're saying, like, that shit was horrible. Right. right yeah. <laughs> Why is he here? Right. <laughs> In in the room, they all feel and they all comment because every time somebody does it the first time, I, I ask them about it afterwards. Like, is it was this cool for you? Was it comfortable? And they all seem to say the same thing. And I don't think it's it's to make me happy. They're like, no, I, I like it like this. I, I like the idea that we can talk to each other right away. I like the idea that it feels like there's direct feedback. It feels more intimate. Are you looking at them? I mean, because I know like sometimes because in like radio, right? You when I was. We used to engineer uh, with hosts. There was I, I had a host that you had to look at them because if you didn't, they would s- stop talking on the air uh, because, like, well, obviously no one's listening to me. Even though, like, like you said, you're behind the glass, you could do all this stuff. You don't, you need, and also you're on a board, so your job is to make sure that the the console's on fire as it's happening. But this host would stop talking if you didn't look. Is that the same with with artists? It depends on the act. Um, like there's a bunch singers again it depends on the singer but some singers work better with direction even if it's not like a verbal direction right so like I have a bunch of singers that I work with that just um, moving your hand you know like they understand this part like I need a lift at this part or you know like it's like a conductor conducting a choir you know yeah so some people like that. Other people like the idea of being like the person who was in here last time, like the idea of being turned away and kind of zoning out and not feeling like they're in their own space. Mm. Meanwhile, when it's done, they can turn around and right away have immediate feedback with me. Because, like, you know, if we kind of do it where it's like this. This is a good light. Yeah. yeah. You know what I mean, it kind of, it kind of gives them, it depends on, on the, on the, the, the talent and the vibe and the song and, you know, what's going on in the room. Like sometimes some people are comfortable with a couple other people in the room. They need it. Um, other people, you got to get everybody out the room. You know, they can't focus when other people are in the room. So, uh, it, it kind of depends on the, the person, but, that kind of goes back to the, the the producer aspect you know what I mean like so as a producer you need to kind of figure out how to pull this performance out of the artist how to talk to them about the song so that because a lot of, you know I, it's it's acting without a screen right you know what I mean yeah yeah so like you know but both of us read for the same part in a in a movie and you were amazing at it, and I was horrible at it. Everybody would know right away, right? You right. know, and it's a, it's the same kind of thing, except all we have is is the speakers. So it's it's like a director pulling that performance out of a actor, mm-hmm. you know. So final two questions, but you know, you moved around. You had the label. You had the studios. Um, 
you hear, has there been like kind of one piece of equipment or maybe a few pieces of equipment that, that goes kinda, with me? That goes with you no matter where you go. Yeah. This. <laughs> <laughs> I have a Lexicon 224XL, which is probably, oh, and this. I feel like the, the movie The Jerk. <laughs> I just need this and this. <laughs> All you need is this lamp. Um, the two twenty four has been with me since seventy eight eighty eight. This has been with me since before seventy eight eighty eight. And are you using them or are you just Yeah. And the two twenty four no. The two twenty four doesn't work anymore. But I carry it around anyway. And it's, it's a big piece. Like yeah, that's so just not let it go. Anything? No. <laughs> I, I, I've been. I, I probably get somebody offers to buy it off of me probably at least twice a month. Really? Oh, wow. yeah. Like they don't make them anymore, and um, I, I just, I, I don't, I don't, I don't feel the need to fix it, but I don't think I'll ever get rid of it. Mm-hmm. <laughs> you know. And this, this is, and these pieces are like this one's from from the seventies, and this is from the eighties. Those are probably the only two. Everything else has been swapped out. So, last question, and this is a JS question. <laughs> so, JS one. He says, "I should end the interview with you by you playing me two in the pink, one in the stink." <laughs> Unsure what that means, <laughs> but I had a feeling that That's was going to happen. <laughs> Do you don't know what that means? No. <laughs> and I didn't Google Two it. Two in the pink, one in the stick. Oh my god, he's a dick. <laughs> I thought it was a song. It is a song. It is. All right. I played him that record, and we laughed over this record. Like, uh, I'm not going to mention the name of the record or the artist because, <laughs> but when I played him the record, like, we couldn't believe, one, that anybody could, could come up with these things to say, and two, actually, like, do a whole record, record. you know what I mean? <laughs> and it was crazy, and, like, every time, and that one line had us cracking up because I forgot what it was. We, we heard the line, right? And when we heard the line, because of what the context of the song is, we knew what they were talking about. And then, like, a week later, a, a big movie came out. I can't remember what it was. And they used the line in the movie. Wow. And he hit me up. He was like, yo, did you see it? Two in the pink, one in the stick. <laughs> yeah, that's pretty funny. That's I can't believe he remembers that. <laughs> I mean, I... I feel like I should get him back somehow, but I'm not sure how I'm going to do that. Uh, Rich, thank you so much for thank taking time. Thank you so and much for letting, um, letting, letting me let all that out. That's yeah, pretty cool. It's like therapy. <laughs> That'll be 100 bucks. Uh, uh, Rich A. He, um, producer, engineer, label owner. Uh, thanks so much, man. Thanks for doing this. Thank you, man. Thanks. Two. BBK style, follow.
How hot? Like 450 Fahrenheit is. So call a parent writer, start claiming laryngitis. Pride? A lot of you cats most been swallowing. Your shit is milk, huh? Well, I'm lactose intolerant. Black folks been following. Written testaments. But I'm living evidence of the pimping element. Came in the Mac with women not in the act. Or thoughts of seeing me, I erased them like the men in black. Spit ball, big jaw, split jaw, thick jaw, get ball, pit jaw. You piece it together just like a jigsaw. The real game too hard to ignore. Niggas going through withdrawal. I pour it on to correspond Along with your mental horizon I order warn, the war is on Y'all don't wanna do it, not even argue Niggas be careful what they say to me just like sparkle Temperatures rising, you feeling the heat Family enterprise, or we still in the street Enemies despising, the see you repeat But we keep the game strong, flame on Temperatures rising, you feeling the heat Family enterprise, or we still in the street Enemies despising, the see you repeat But we keep the game strong, flame on Stick to what part you're playing I bogart my way in And show my ass like Marlon Wayans Spit flames to the last bar Leave track smoking like NASCAR Then I'm Caspar Cause niggas play games To trap me, get them Trying to move in with heaters To clap me with them Floor's even kinda wet Wanna catch me slipping But I give it to them thorough Over nasty lips Always holding the fork When I roll on the court Controlling the sport To make sure the door is short That's how it Go in New York How much more do you want? The pimp shit is in the blood Don't even show when I talk Speak clearly with my theory so people not near me can hear me. My theory don't never gather seven is very scary. Flamethrower, lingo hot as hell be. Game over, Domingo gotta tell me. Uh. Temperatures rising, we feeling the heat. Family enterprise, are we still in the street? Enemies despising, the see you repeat. But we keep the game strong. Flame on. Couldn't fuck around with this on your best night. When I scream, let's fight. Niggas turn transvestite and don't dress right. When the red light is headed at your chest site, you just might want to make sure your vest tight. Uh, Nothing but chaos and misery. Stay lost, your history. For you, this'll be the worst outcome. Me rehearse outcome. You right, I spit shit for my first album. Shit, I'm that nigga. Uh, game over, nigga. BP added more than $70 billion to the U.S. economy in 2022 by making investments from coast to coast. Investments like building charging hubs for fleets of electric buses in California and starting up new infrastructure in the Gulf of Mexico. It's and, not or. See what doing both means for energy nationwide at bp.com slash investing in America. Want the same expert advice you get from the pros in the store while shopping online at DiscountTire.com? Meet Treadwell, your personal online tire guide that matches you with the perfect tire for your vehicle. Get your best match in one minute or less with Treadwell by Discount Tire.